Good afternoon. This is WVEWLP 107.7 FM, your community radio station, also streaming live online at www.wvew.org. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections on the air every noon at Sunday. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests and not of the radio station. Um, last week's show, we had a show about mills and mill workers in the Connecticut River Valley, and today's show will be about Cuba. I'm Henry Zucchini. I'm a local educator at Brattleboro Union High School, and it's a joint show today. Michaela Sims is also here. Hello. And are we, I'm wondering, um, are we replaying the show on Thursdays? I don't know. Are we doing that? I'm not sure if we are. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to add that in. That it should be replaying on Thursdays at 4. 4 in the afternoon. Yeah. Okay, great. So today's show is about Cuba, and we have a few things we'll be discussing, including some historical, putting Cuba in a historical context, um, Cuba headlines currently. Um, we have a guest guest speaker coming in. Uh, yeah, guest caller. Um, so we have a few things going on today, but I guess, uh, Michaela, let's, let's start with our first round of topics which has to do with um, Cuba, headlines, change of power, Castro, these types of things. Do you want to get us rolling? Well, yeah. I, I mean, I feel like that's the big news is that um, Cuba now has a new president. Raul Castro has stepped down and um, Miguel Diaz-Canel is now the president of Cuba. And that's been a big headline. I think that it's also good to know that um, Fidel Castro was not the first president of Cuba, so it's not the first time that Castro has not been in power since the revolution. Castro was not the first after the re- president after the revolution. Um. Do you think, uh, Michaela, there's a lot of speculation, I guess it's too early to tell, but what this, what, if anything, it'll change or what, what in Cuba will change? Do you have any feelings about that? It's early days, I guess. It's only been a week or a little bit more since this change of power and Raul's still head of the communist party in Cuba but do you have any feelings about maybe it's too early to tell what what may or may not change in Cuba as a result of the change in power I don't think changes in Cuba have to do with as much with the change in power but also how the world is reacts to what happens in Cuba so the U.S. reaction um, the blockade and a lot of other things outside that Cubans cannot control often dictate the, some of the um, conditions in Cuba more so than the, what's actually happening in Cuba. So um, we'll see what the world does. Uh, I mean, blockade continually has an impact on what happens, and um, it also helps to impoverish people on the island. Do you want to speak a little bit more about the blockade, just in case some of our listeners aren't aware of what, what that is? Many people probably are, but maybe there are a few that aren't quite sure what that is. Um, the blockade is a U.S. policy that started in the 50s after the revolution where certain goods and services are not allowed to be sent to Cuba. Um, U.S. investment is not allowed in Cuba. Um, U.S. money is not supposed to be spent in Cuba. Interesting. Because <laughs> <laughs> we both know, Mikhail and I both traveled in Cuba, so we know that's not necessarily the case. But And... Um, that there's a lot of medicines and things like that that U.S. companies have patents on that are not allowed to go. So it impacts the economy a great deal. Um, and because also sometimes the, there are certain policies where the U.S. will not trade with people 
who trade with Cuba. Right. So they that's interesting too. That what I found out when I was there, and I, I didn't know that part of the blockade that the U.S. will punish other countries for trading certain goods with Cuba. So it makes some goods very expensive, if at all available, to people in Cuba because of that. The punishment you know, the U.S. puts on other other company or companies countries for that for trading with Cuba. So that's kind of interesting. So it is a um, it's serious, and they had eased it up a few years ago, and now it's the restrictions are. Um, being enforced again with the same fervor as before, um, including restrictions on U.S. travel. And um, it's kind of interesting because, and we'll get into this later in the show, but some of the history behind what preceded the blockade and how the blockade came to be, because in order to understand why the blockade's there and maybe um, put it in a historical context, we kind of have to understand what the U.S. role was in Cuba before the Cuban Revolution. So, But we right. can talk about that in the third part of the show. We'll, we'll address some of the history later. Um, what about Castro as a dictator? Because because this change in power it brings up in the U.S. press and media a lot this idea that, oh, the dictatorship may be coming an end, to an end, and, and uh, Castro and Raul and Fidel as, as dictators. And also, it was interesting, you and I were sitting in my classroom at the end of the week, and we had a student say to us, we were, we were talking about their show, Getting Ready, and the student said, oh, you mean Castro the dictator? And I, I said to the student, well, it depends on who you ask, because the U.S. has one impression because of the media and what's told to us about that, and then Cubans have a bit of a different impression for the most part. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? or? No, I think that, I mean, my first thing to think about is, like, what is a dictator? And then I was like, of course, I look it up. And it's like a, pers- a ruler with total power over a country and who usually has obtained that... Uh, power by force, um, and I think that is um, there's a lot of teaching that goes on about other places in the world here in the United States. So I feel like one of the per- first things to do before we even talk about what a dictator is is to uh, we ourselves to all constantly question what we're being taught and why we might be t- being taught that. So. Um, Castro is one of those historical figures that is easily demonized. But then how do you also demonize a population along with this person? So I feel like sometimes we have to shift our thinking to not look at just historical figures, but look at a broad range of like what's happening and why would you mystify this place and put such a negative light on it and ask those questions of ourselves before we're so quick to believe that someone's a dictator, because I feel like there are quite a few elections in recent U.S. history that people have had questions about mm-hmm. how the how the person was elected. And I think that there was a case, Gore, I think, went to the Supreme Court, right? Sure, to, yeah. Even though he backed down right. to say, like, all the votes weren't counted. Yeah, and they probably weren't, especially in Florida. Yeah, they probably weren't. And so, and that would have made a big difference. Yeah, and they disenfranchised large parts of the black population who had been in prison and came out of prison in Florida, they don't let you vote permanently if you're in prison in Florida. They take away your voting rights. So people assume that if, if people who had been felonies could have voted, you know, even if there hadn't been fraud, which there probably was. Um, so that alone is, well, what, what kind of, isn't that a fraudulent election? If you can't, people have served their time in prison, they're, they're out of prison, and their, their citizenship rights are taken away. So that's another part of that story, too. It's interesting. So I would say, like, so then what is a dictator? And, like, how do we, how are we framing what we learn about different places in the world and what questions are we asking? Because I think that it's hard for us in the U.S. A lot of people, we're not able to travel. So where do we get our information from? And to look really carefully at those sources and what their motivations might be. 
Yeah, and I think that's the key with a lot of what's told to American students and the American population is that make sure that when the government or teachers tell us things about that we don't ever get the full historical context of what's actually going on, that we're only told a very small part of the story. So you can't understand anything about Castro or Cuba unless you have the broader historical reach of that story because it doesn't, otherwise it doesn't have any meaning or relevance. You have to be able to look at it more broadly. It's the same thing with our own history internally in this country, but with Cuba it's certainly true. And so whenever Castro's talked about as a dictator, it's never told in any kind of historical context. It's just this straight, simple, simplified kind of toddler level story that people got digest and then they repeat it ad nauseum to the point where this student of ours in the classroom, he doesn't know much about, you know, but he knows that, you know, right. he doesn't even knows barely anything about Cuba, just a little bit. He knew the Spanish American war a little bit and, and Castro as a dictator. And if you ask most students at the school, I would imagine the high school, if they knew anything, that's about what they would know and really not a whole lot else. I was told also by a student that um, that they weren't allowed to use the word colonization in regards to Cuba or the Philippines. That their teacher said, "Really? Why you? Use, that's a strong word." Huh. <laughs> and I and I was helping this person with their homework yesterday, and I was like, "I would put colonize," and they were like, "No, no, the teacher won't like the word colonizer right there." Hmm. I was like, "Oh, okay." That's I was like, oh, I can't remember what we turned changed the word to, but yeah. Um, and that's I said dom- we changed it to domination. Yeah. How can, how can you talk about Cuba without colonization? It's almost impossible. It d- literally defines the country's last 400 years in, on some level. You know, enslavement and colonization to literally defines the history of Cuba. Um, and there's, I mean, if you, if you can't start with that as a base of your analysis and you can't really analyze what's happening there. If you can't talk about enslavement and you can't co- talk about colonization, then you really can't talk about Cuba because then Castro and anything that's happening now makes no sense whatsoever because you can't put it in a historical context. Right. Yeah. Um, did you want to talk at all about, and maybe this is putting you on the spot, but there's a recent article in the, <laughs> the Commons about Cuba. And we, we did have a thing um, referring to recent Cuba headlines. And this is a Commons um, article from geez, last week about, um, and it's just maybe, we don't want to maybe... Um, attack it per se but it's just interesting because we both read the article and both had analysis of what was going on um maybe there are a couple local folks i'm not sure they seem to be local people from the brattleboro area who visited cuba and some of the analysis is interesting because we have both traveled in cuba too fairly recently and so the the perceptions of the people that traveled and ours were slightly different and do you want to touch upon that at all or should we i'll let you touch on that (laughs) okay well it's, it's interesting they referred to in the article one thing that kind of struck me is the 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 authors talked about the um much of the much of the um of the embassy staff was removed from from Havana because there were supposedly these sound problems that they were getting and it's it does sound crazy, but the story the official story from the u s government was that the the embassy staff were being attacked by some kind of sound reverberations in their homes or in embassy buildings it's unclear and that they then they sent a bunch of the staff home because of these sound attacks and then the Cuban government was kind of implied it was implied that the Cuban government was at fault and in the article in the Commons it says well it's clear that people were severely injured by these attacks. Well, it's interesting to me in the context of, of the propaganda we hear about Cuba to think about, well, is that actually true? Do we really know for sure whether these sound attacks were legit and real or was it an excuse to make to be able to withdraw the population of the embassy? Because Obama had expanded the embassy and kind of get it, got it back in place under his presidency and the Trump administration clearly didn't want that going on. And so you could either easily have a different narrative 
than that one. So I just thought that was an interesting Well, point. not expanded the embassy. There was no embassy. No, no embassy, right. Reopened the embassy, so, I should say, right. So, yeah, like there, w- yeah. there wasn't. That's a new building. And if you saw it on the water, it's a pretty big, impressive yep. building on the water. And yeah, that did not exist. It was a Swiss council mm-hmm. served as um, kind of like conduit. There was right. no embassy no before. Embassy, yeah. yeah, recently. So um, I don't have a... Um, yeah, a comment really. Okay. Uh, but actually, uh, I think that um, our ne- our um, our guest is calling me on my cell phone. Okay, that's great. <laughs> so maybe um, we should take um, a short musical break and yeah. then get him on the air. So um, we are going to have after the break. A special guest um, named Jerry Sierra. Um, he's an artist. Uh, he's Cuban-American, and he studied Cuba extensively. So if we can get our technology sorted out, which we probably will, we'll have him after the, after the song break. He'll call in, and we'll do a little short interview with him and then do some reflecting about the interview once he's off the air. And we'll, do, we'll put, um, towards the end of the show today, we'll put Cuba in some historical context. So we're going to take a short song break. Um, this is Irakere. It's a really famous um, Cuban band with a song called Ilya. Thank you. 
This is WVEW 107.7 Community Radio, Brattleboro Community Radio. You're listening to Indigo Radio. And today's show, we're covering Cuba, all all things Cuba, some recent events. Well, not all things Cuba. Not all things, that's right. (laughs) Some things Cuba. Recent events, um, political conversation about what's happening now, a little bit of historical context. And we have a guest on the line who's going to speak with us a little bit. Um, Jerry, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Welcome, Jerry. We have Jerry Sierra on the line. Jerry, would do you like to introduce yourself? Tell the listeners. Um, sure. Uh, my name is Jerry, and I've uh, produced for 20 years historyofcuba.com, which is uh, would like it sounds like a Cuban history, a timeline, series of articles, and this has been a labor of love, definitely, and uh, personal exploration um that was the only way i think that i could really find out about cuba i grew up in a definitely republican anti-castro environment it's very easy to blame castro for a you know crowded freeway um (laughs) so i was also surrounded mostly in los angeles by other latinos who had a very different view of Cuba and Castro and all that. So at one point, I just started reading everything I could just quietly. It became my hobby. Um, Then in the early 1990s, I noticed that uh, the Microsoft Encyclopedia had a whole bunch of mistakes Mm. on Cuban history, including listing the birth of Jose Marti as uh, in 18... 1835 instead of 1853. Oh, wow. And when I couldn't get them to fix it, I was sending letters and calling. Somehow that was important to me because Marti had a very short life. If you add that extra time, it seems like he had a longer life. Mm. Um, And I was learning how to code websites, and between one thing and another, suddenly I had a timeline on my own website. And eventually it became historyofcuba.com. Amazing. It's important. And Jose Marti is a really important figure um, in Cuban history yeah, and in everybody all of Latin America. Them. Everybody wants to, you know, we have a radio and TV Marti that historically been used to lie to the Cuban people, mm. which would be, a, it's, it's really sad to me to, to have his name used this way. So could you tell us what you think people should know about Cuban history and about Cuba now? Well, Cuban history, one thing we don't realize, and I have noticed that here uh, all my life, is that Cuba's an old country. It's basically like 550-some years old. I don't know exactly if you think that it started with the arrival of the Spanish. Yeah, he started calling it Cuba pretty quickly, but for most of that time, Cuba has not been able to determine its own identity, its own focus. Um, it was with Marti that, that we were starting to write down the things that we were thinking about in terms of race and in terms of how to live. Um, that didn't get to happen. That never. There was always an empire that had its own ideas of what Cuba could be, a place to grow sugar, a place for beaches. And, but um, 
that didn't really start until the late 50s, uh, the real Cuba. And there have been a lot of issues with that because Cuba, one thing historically, we were not let go by the U.S. empire. We, or they, <laughs> stepped away on their own. Castro came and said, we're Cubans, our borders are the ocean. Mm. And we decide what happens here. We, we have different priorities. Um, somehow that has been that has been a, a serious a serious message to the world that cannot really be allowed by a big empire. You consider we have like what yeah. is it over eight hundred military bases? Is it now all over the world? So all like, over the world. A country with eleven million people that just suddenly. Well, they didn't have 11 million people back then. They <laughs> forgot what the actual amount is. But they basically said, yeah, we want to have our own country, and, and we don't believe the, the racist stuff that got pushed on Cuba mm. from the empire, the, the rights and wrongs. Um, and then also remember that Cuba's revolution started, I mean, the, the modern revolution started in the 1930s with a legally elected left-wing government that was not allowed by the United States to to basically take over. Um, so, this is... so I mean, to, to me, that means that why don't we just leave them alone, let them do their thing. What are they going to do that's going to hurt us? In fact, nothing. Cubans have never invaded a country for conquest. They, you know, everything they've done is defensive. I'm wondering, though, how other countries would react, especially the United States, if they know that, what, is it 90 miles? Or is it 60 miles or 90 miles? 90, I think, right? Uh, between, you mean between Florida and yeah. Havana, it's yeah. about 90 miles. Yeah, that, that people have free education and free health care on this tiny island. Um, and people here are in debt sometimes for the rest of their lives for th simple things like education yeah. <laughs> or or even health care losing their homes you know i don't know if that could be allowed that that well, those see, it's, it's always something back in the day back before any of us were here and let's just even go back to the 1800s they couldn't allow a country that was being set up to be race blind where mm -hmm. Essentially, there was no black or white. The, the government never kept records of, you know, the Spanish government kept records of race. But the idea of Cuba was that it didn't matter. You know, if you had something to, to give to, to your country, that mattered. If you had done something illegal or bad, that mattered. But otherwise, the color of your skin and your culture didn't then play into it. And who was the leader at that time in the 1930s? I'm sorry, Ruthie? Who was the leader in the 30s then of the Cuban nation? Uh, there was a, uh, a guy called Grau San Martin, I believe. Okay. I forget his name, the, the name of the guy. Hold on, let me... No, it's okay. Continue. Uh, I mean, there, was, there were a couple of guys that supported a more liberal Cuba. The, the first... Uh, it was kind of a mess. If you look at the first 30 years after the War of 1898, 
when the Spanish government moved out and the U.S. then took over, and they forced the U.S.-style government on Cuba. And they basically approved the candidates and, and all that. Um, so basically... And somehow that didn't, um, that didn't seem to go well with, with a lot of Cubans who were hoping to evolve, to be on their own, to have their own ideas, uh, free education being one of them, and, and medical care. So these ideas that we associate with the Cuban Revolution in the 50s have been around for more than 20 years before. Yeah. And so you talked to me before about Guantanamo as a significant region in Cuba. Um, and I think some people might not know that Guantanamo is not just a base, but that Guantanamo is a region in Cuba. And yeah, it's a very significant region because it's in what they called Oriente province. Back then, Cuba had been divided by the Spanish into six provinces. Now, Cuba is divided into more provinces. I think it's like 12 or something. I don't even really know. But the Oriente province was the heart and soul of the revolution. This is where black and people black and white people joined hands originally they saw that to the spanish government they were practically the same even though being white gave you a lot more you know a lot a, a lot more a lot more freedom let's just say uh, and there were ways that the black population allowed poor whites to be in the um in the fray to be part of the, the African groups, you know, the, the joining that was basically part of the culture that came from Africa. And so you had black and white people participating in these things. This is as late as, uh, as early as the 1700s. Um, and eventually they decided that we had to have a country that was for Cubans, not for Spanish. And the Spanish, who were in charge of the government and the military, could change the law at any time. Uh, but if you think about Guantanamo, it, it, Guantanamo Bay, it's right there, almost in between the places where both significant wars of independence against Spain started. Uh, it's right there where Martí died. Um, it's a large area, but it's still... Imagine having, I don't know, I don't know how, to, how to make an analogy to, to compare it. Just imagine having our enemies uh, uh, take a big chunk of Florida, right? And, and it's theirs now because they say it is. Right. And because they made a, a deal with the crooked government in the 1930s. Um, it's so a real sad thing. To me, see, it's sad not just for Cubans, but for Americans. I consider that a lot of what I've done on this website is for my American part, because I grew up here. I live here. This is my country. If we were under attack, I would fight. Right. Um, after 9-11, boy, I was so enraged that this could happen, but I was more enraged because we were doing these kind of things to Cuba. 
and other countries right, so as well. And other countries, right. But I'm, I'm more able to see what we've done to Cuba mm. because these kind of things rarely get covered in the media. Um, and it's difficult to start a casual conversation. That's true. You know, in, in almost anywhere. Um, even something like Bay of Pigs, we have all this information about Bay of Pigs, but we still come across people that think it was a bunch of Cubans that got in a boat and went to Cuba to invade Sudan. And I said, wait a minute, that's not, it wasn't like that. Uh, suddenly talking about it becomes controversial and um, it's sad. It's, it's really sad to me. Well, I think it is interesting that the U.S. held occupied territory is in a place of significant solidarity and that has um, a rich history of resistance um, and that it's been held without um, agreement by the Cuban government for so long. And even though it's been said that it's going to be closing, it doesn't seem that that is going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, no, it doesn't seem like it's going to be closing. I think it's even more complicated because the United Nations and, and almost every country in the world has agreed that it was basically an illegal deal that they made um, in 1933 with the government that included Batista as a signator to that agreement. Batista was a dictator that Cubans have never elected. Well, they elected him once in the 1940s, but essentially at that time, in the 1933, he was not elected to anything. He was just put in power because he was the friendliest thing that we could find over there. But also what people don't know is that the U.S. has been there since 1898. Wow. That is rarely told. But in 1898, when the war in the summer, when the war against um, the Spanish, when we started the intervention, Spanish -American that's war, yeah. when we went in. You know, somehow I've seen it uh, um, stated in places that the U.S. took over in 1903 and then in 1933. And those were years in which the U.S. tried to solidify its legal status there by forcing the government to sign agreements. Um, but essentially, what I'm saying is the oldest military station that the U.S. has has been where it is for over a hundred years. Wow. Um, I think it's hard so, for the people in this country to imagine what you said when you mentioned imagine if an, another country came in and took a large swath of Florida. I think that that is so foreign to us. Um, yeah. That we don't get it. Well, we haven't had a war here. We, we've kind of had a like, situation just possibly until last year when, when, you know, with the presidential election. Um, so it's easy to overlook these things. Also, one thing that is different, why we don't get it, is because we don't look into our history a lot as a people. Hmm. And I remember that as a kid when I was in school in Cuba. But we had history. All, you know, we had to talk about history and make oral reports and read books. But after I came here, we hardly ever, you know, we had like a 20-minute, this is George Washington, he was a good guy. He's a good this guy. <laughs> yeah, we never, I mean, I didn't even know about J. 
Jefferson and his slaves until I was in college, which is absurd. Um, and I, I, I think and somehow we, we get away. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt no, you. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Somehow we what? Uh, I'm sorry, I got interrupted. What were, I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> All right, it's fine. I was just going to ask you, because you mentioned George Washington being a good guy, that, um, you know, we're taught to revere or not or hate individual figures in history. I feel like everything gets oversimplified. Um, earlier, we were talking about a student who clearly had been taught that Castro was a dictator, and that happened. Um, that happens a lot. But how do we go, go beyond that and, and examine the complexity of history? You know, like, what are your thoughts about that? Oh, I, that's a good question. I, I, you know, I definitely want to give that a lot of thought. One thing that I've noticed, for example, is that we are taught, especially, I guess I, I work for the Human Service Agency. And, we, you know, they don't want us to express any kind of a political idea. You know, so we're taught to just do our jobs and let authority be the authority somehow, and let things happen as they will. And taking the initiative, um, there's a price to pay. <laughs> mm. I think that people that have done that, we should, I mean, I think I, I, I for example, I have um, this strange affection for Mark Twain, and I know that some people have looked at some things he wrote and, and it's wrong, but I think for the time, Mark Twain and some of his speeches and some of his, uh, the way he spoke against the Filipino um, war, he was kind of almost like close to like a Cuban Marti. Marti might have been Mark Twain that also got involved in politics. Mm -hmm. uh, but essentially, we don't um, we don't look deeply at, at a lot of things that we probably should. And and dealing with with disagreements, we're really bad at. Mm -hmm. I know that it's gotten worse. You know, people are digging their heels now in the Trump era. But we, I think we've always been, you know, diff, uh, we've always had difficulty looking at the complexity of situations that you may be, you may be a, a real bad person in this way, but you may be good in this other way. I, I think of Bill Clinton, and, and I have a lot of reasons for being angry with Bill Clinton that I think are personal. He, he signed <laughs> the embargo into law, mm -hmm. right? Yep. You know, he, he did that. And then, but I mean, let's face it, he was one of our best presidents in other ways. At least oh, he was intelligent and he, he kind of, he could look out for his country, not just for an economic, the economic interests of, of a few. Well, Jerry, we're going to take a break right now and then come back and finish up with you, if that's all yeah, right with sure. you. Sorry if I'm going on and on. No, you're great. Um, so we're going to play what? Perez Prado. Okay. Okay. Perez we'll, Prado sounds yep. great. We'll be All back right. in a minute.
This is WVEWLP 107.7 FM, your, com- your Brattleboro community radio station, and you're currently listening to Indigo Radio, which is on every Sunday, uh, this exact su- time, this exact channel at <laughs> noon, also replaying at four, Michaela says, on Thursday, on Thursday which is yeah. exciting. Just a heads up to people, um, this, this um, show is... Um, staffed by people from Brattleboro Solidarity and we're organizing in, in concert with the Brooks Memorial Library. Um, Tuesday is International Workers' Day and there'll be a Workers' Day celebration and play Woo-hoo. on Tuesday at Brooks Memorial Library on Main Street in Brattleboro from 6 to 8 and there'll be food and fun so please come if you can. May Day, I love it. May Day. So shall we continue with our guest? Yes. Jerry, are you still there? Yes. And today our show is about Cuba. We have Jerry Sierra with us, and um, I don't know if there's anything that you feel like is important for people to know about Cuba now. Um, what? Well, one one thing that is different about Cuba now than the Cuba that we had in the 50s is that people have the capacity to get a free education. So people have used it. I'm not saying that it's a, like an academic country or anything like that, but I know that members in my family have gone to school and my aunt that just visited my my family last year, she's gone to school a lot just because she likes it and she can. It's not just a practical thing that you have to go to school to get a job. She's retired. I mean, she's in her 80s now. 
And uh, she said a lot of old people go to school. And it's not just social, it's just they like it. Essentially, you know, it's a little bit of a hassle. You have the bureaucracy to get through. But if you have a reason and the capacity, you can go to school, which to me is great. It also makes for a country that knows its history. Mm -hmm. So that has to count for something. I'm not even sure. But I, I know that when, when I talked to Cubans, the other day I ran, I was at the market, and I'm hearing these people speak Spanish. And I realized these guys are visiting somebody, and they have traveled to San Francisco during their visit. Um, it, it was just incredible. But one thing I noticed is that they're aware of their history and American history in a way that we're not. That's As Americans, mm -hmm. sorry, there's a silence, that we're not aware of their history. So, except for the language barrier, you know, the conversations could be a little bit, a little bit strange. I mean, I had, in, in the few minutes that I talked with these people, I had various references to American culture and uh, American history that, in reverse, we could not have done that. It, it would take somebody with an interest or, or a specific level of education. Um, I think that having that a population like that, instead of us trying to starve them into submission and to form a, a U.S. style government and say, look how our U.S. style government is functioning right now. Right. Uh, but we could just follow President Obama's lead, just make friends with, with them, uh, maybe stop the terrorism against them, and, um, and move forward and let them take care of themselves. They won't need our help very much. We have also great business opportunities that are to be had there. Um, but we have to first admit that we don't have a right to go and tell this other country Yep. how they need to run their business. That's right. We just don't. We need to worry about running our business. Right now we're in trouble. We need to focus on that. That is um, the fact. And, Jerry, I want to thank you so much for being with us today and talking to us about Cuba. Um, we really appreciate your time. No, I want to thank you for having this show because these are things that people need to hear. And sometimes somebody like me starts talking, I start sounding preachy, um, like I said, I've tried to have conversations like this at work with nice, more people. They do not they have things. There's not a band, a rock band. Well, we so, will I mean, give... It just falls off the, off the radar like it never happened. Well, we will uh, send you a link to the show, and you can share it with your colleagues. <laughs> I sure will. All right. All right. Thank you so much, Thanks Jerry. so much, Ramos. All okay. right. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, so we're going to play a PSA, and we wanted to thank our guest, Jerry Sierra, for being with us. This is Indigo Radio 107.7 WVEWLP. Hello, this is Eugene Newman, director of the Vermont Jazz Center. The VJC is a proud underwriter of WVEWLP Brattleboro. The Jazz Center is located in the Cotton Mill Hill Building in Brattleboro, Vermont. 
We are an award-winning nonprofit dedicated to creating and preserving jazz through the presentation of workshops, concerts, and instruction. For further information, check us out online at www.vtjazz.org. Okay, we are back. This is Henry Zucchini. I am an educator uh, at Brattleboro Union High School, and I'm part of the Indigo Radio crew, and I'm with Michaela Sims today. She is also part of the Indigo Radio crew. Indigo Radio is here every Sunday at noon. Um, we're also here. Uh, replay of the show is four is played at four o'clock every Thursday on the show as well. Four o'clock p.m. That is. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit about what Jerry shared with us and debrief about? So it a we bit? had Jerry Sierra on a Cuban America, and and I think that he talked about two things that were really interesting. And one is the U.S. as an empire, which I feel like people don't often think of the U- United States as an imperial force. Um, and um, that the U.S. still holds territories like um, Puerto Rico and Guam. Are there any others I'm forgetting? Uh, Hawaii. <laughs> Hawaii. Oh, Hawaii. Well, Hawaii is a state, I mean, what are we, gonna, we, better, we better ask the Hawaiians. We're going to end that conversation. Uh, <laughs> uh, Georgia. I mean, uh, you know, where, are the, where are there not occupied territories, I guess would be the question. But you were thinking more present-day Okay, yeah, we can go back and talk about settler colonialism. Yeah, so. That is a... A whole other subject, perhaps. Well, I think you're right. It is the same subject, but it speaks to the complexity that we asked Jerry about at the end um, and the fact that issues are not as clear-cut as we'd like them to be and to say, like, this is a bad person, this is a good person, but that we need to look into history and delve into the, the messiness Stand in, stand in the middle of it, and find out what we think. Um, that there's no simple way to say um, who's good and who's bad, but really to look at history and who did what and for what reasons, right. and what were the results, and who benefited from those results. And that's mm-hmm. not an easy thing to do because it's not written that way. That's right. So it takes a lot of initiative. That's what Jerry talked about: is taking initiative to find that out. But when you find those things out, that there is a price to pay. And I feel like that piece that he said was really important and that people are not interested often in looking at complexity. They just want a quick answer. They want a toolkit and they want to know who they should root for and who they should boo. And yeah. life is not like that. It's the, the type one versus type two thinking, the kind of, kind of reactionary lizard mind that just is flight or fight, you know, or the deeper thinking mind that takes more takes more analytical skills and really digging down and seeing what's what's a common theme in Cuba. And for me, a common theme in Cuba is who's profiting. You kind of touched on that. But Cuba from the time of Spanish imperialism and colonization all the way through until the to the revolution, you had a situation where the people of Cuba, the country of Cuba was used for someone else's profit and gain and not for the Cuban people's profit and gain. And so that's the theme. Jerry kind of mentioned that when he was talking to us, but that's kind of the theme for me that runs consistently all the way through that whole period. No, um, what do you call it? Self determination, determination, right? Of the people of Cuba. In fact, there was just other people determining exploitation and, and profit basically, you know? So that's the theme that runs through 
Cuban, uh, Spanish occupation of Cuba to U.S. occupation of Cuba. And he started, Jerry started with uh, the Spanish. But of course, we also know that Cuba was already occupied before the Spanish even arrived. You know, the Taino people were there. And so what was taken from them as well is a, is a whole other story because he referred to the beginning of the country of Cuba as, as time, colonization. As colonization. But of course, our de definition of country is all tied in with our perceptions of what civilization is and this type of thing. And, and I would argue that, that, that that was already an occupied place before the Spanish even arrived. They had to begin the killing right as soon as they got there in order to exploit the resources the way they wanted to. Yeah, it's a horrible vision, I feel like. I mean, a friend of mine just sent me this, um, a picture of the, in Montgomery, Alabama, they now have a right. monumental... All, for the all the people who have right. been lynched and um, to think of the destruction of human life that happens for conquest and for profit is unfathomable and it's, it's continuous yeah. throughout history. And then when you talk about freedom, and I, I think you mentioned this to, to, to me earlier, it's like freedom for what? Freedom to make profit. And no one will deny your right to make profit. Mm -hmm. But then they'll deny that the killing that happens is a necessity for profit. Though those links are not made, and that complexity of history is not made. That though all of the torture of human beings that's happened is often linked to someone making a profit. It makes me think of when I was there visiting just a, a month ago or so. Um, I went to a um, a French, a French formerly French-owned um, sugar plantation. Um, and no, it wasn't sugar. I'm sorry. It was a coffee plantation. And at this French owned, the reason the French were there is because they'd been kicked out of Haiti because there was a Haitian revolution. They kicked the French owners out. And so they, many of them moved to Cuba to be, to re-up their exploitation and the profit making. Re-up. Re-up, you know, <laughs> re -up. And, uh, and there were, there were, there were quarters for enslaved peoples below where the, the so the, the main kind of house where the, the wow. overseers lived they looked upon the plantation, but the people that were enslaved working on the plantation were in these were in these essentially jail cells beneath the level of the, the, the French plantation owner's view. And so that just gives you a sense. As you said, you can't the, the, the crimes committed are almost unfathomable, the level of that. Um, and so just that little snapshot alone was, was, you know, I took a photograph of one of the cells that they would have kept the enslaved people in. That picture alone can tell you a thousand words, you know, one of the expression sure. a thousand words. So let's take another short break, and then we'll close up the show, um, delving a little bit maybe into Cuban history, um, um, what, what it's like for a socialist country in a sea of capitalism, perhaps, because that's essentially what Cuba is now. Um, and so we'll come back and, and kind of wrap the show up. And and we're going to listen right now to a song by Joe Arroyo. Do you want to say anything about this, Mikhail? This is your uh, choice. Joe Arroyo is a Colombian, Afro-Colombian. I don't know why people call it Afro. That's to let them know they're black. Like a Colombian can't just be black. He's a Colombian <laughs> singer. And this song is about um, the rebellion of an enslaved person. It's called Rebellion. De la historia negra, de la historia nuestra, caballero. Y dice así.
back. This is Indigo Radio 107.7 FM Brattleboro, your community radio station. And we're talking about Cuba today. But before we get into our show, we just want to remind you that May 4th is a celebration of diversity, both in the schools around town and downtown Brattleboro. Starting at five o'clock, Elliott Street will be closed off. Did you know that, Henry? I think I did. I mean, I know we've done it before, right? So yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. there'll be a stage, there'll be music, there'll be activities for the kids, there'll be food. So folks should come on out. That's next Friday, May 4th. But in addition to that, on May 1st, yep. we have our May Day uh, event at, at Brooks Memorial Library. Um, it'll be... what. What is the actual title? It's well, it's a geez, that's a, you're putting me on the spot. It's oh, sorry. A, it's a workers' event. We're reading from Howard Zinn's play about um, kind of the history of some important figures in the workers' rights movement through history, and they'll be reading from Howard Zinn's um, based on Howard Zinn's writing this play about workers' rights and workers' history a bit. And each we have local uh, worker celebrities from around Brattleboro reading different parts of this play, so I think it'll be pretty fun. 
So you should come on out and celebrate workers because without them, we would not have food, clothing, or shelter. We would not. <laughs> and May Day, by the way, is not the day that you have um, ribbons and you go around a maypole. That's not what May Day is, <laughs> at least not from our Indigo Radio perspective. May Day is International Workers' Day. We're told that we're told our Workers' Day is in the fall, and uh, but Workers' Day is not in the fall. Workers' Day is in two days. It's on Tuesday. And that's when most countries in the world celebrate it, except for ours. Yeah. Um, so and one last plug. What's our last plug? Oh, oh, next week's show. Oh, what's next week's show? Next week's show is Nina uh, Kunamoto will be doing a show tied into our, our Tuesday event at the Brooks Memorial Library at six, from 6 to 8. And uh, next week's show, next Sunday's show, will be, about, will be about May Day and workers' rights. I'm pretty sure they're going to be touching about on the, upon the teacher strikes that are happening around the country. Um, so... Stay tuned. I think it'll be a good show next week. Cool. And just a reminder, Diversity Day's theme is solidarity. So come on out. All right. Show some solidarity by coming out. That's right. Okay. Um, so another, please, we're just going to close out the show talking about um, the Vinceremos Brigade, which is a group that started going to Cuba in the 1960s, I think 1969. Um and Venceremos means we shall overcome in Spanish. And it is a group of people that just went in solidarity with the Cuban government. And one of the things that they didn't do was ask for permission to go, because at that time you had to position the U.S. government for a license to go and only charter flights um, left from the U.S. to go to, to Cuba. And so you had to have a relative there or you had to petition the government. And this brigade was, t- brigade was typically of American citizens going, U.S. citizens going yes. down to, okay. yes. And there would be one, a contingent from California and one from New York, and they would meet in, um, in Cuba. And I went with them in the early 2000s. That was my first trip to Cuba. I went to, with the brigade, and um, we went in solidarity with Cuban people and stayed in a camp um, and worked and um, did not spend any money. Because <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> at that time, it, wasn't, it still was not illegal to go. Uh-huh. You just you weren't supposed to spend any money. Right. That right. was like the law of the yeah. <laughs> some kind of miracle you'd survive even in Cuba with no not spending a dime. You're, you're, not, yeah. you're not supposed to spend any money. But yeah, but, but we stayed in the camp so we didn't spend any money and we let, we um, did different projects around Havana and we stayed stayed in a camp called Campamento Julio Antonio Meya and I learned a lot and I think that um, one of the significant learnings is that. Um, Solidarity is possible, and that uh, we can't let U.S. policy dictate our own actions, that we have to think about what, what do we think about things. And I think we're constantly told, you know, that, oh, the U.S. economy is doing well, and it's because of this person, or this is happening um, because that person is bad in this country, um, like what's happening in Syria now. Like, Assad is bad, and so we have to bomb him. And so we need to ask questions about those things and question the motives of what our government does. Okay, great. We have just about 15 seconds left to wrap up, but I think that's a, that's a nice way to wrap up. And, you know, not everyone can go to Cuba, but you and I have both been, and in in my impression, I think you would agree, of visiting is very different than the propaganda we're fed from the government. Go see for yourself. Havana is probably the safest big city I've ever been to. It's an amazing place and it's well worth a visit to, to have that uh, different perspective to actually be there and see what, you know, and if you can't go, then research and find out what's really going on in Cuba and not, not the mythology. 
For sure. All right. Great. So um, thanks, Michaela. It was a fun show. And Thanks for listening. Tune in next week um, at noon on Sunday where we'll be discussing uh, workers' rights, um, May Day a bit, and current workers' efforts. Thank you. Richard Wolf. I've been a professor of economics all my adult life, and I hope that prepares me well to present 